Okay, so let us get started with this evening's questions. Uh, and uh, so we start from the top. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, this is my first retreat with you teaching here. Thank you for finding the, uh, uh, the way to bring the Lord Buddha's teaching to life. Uh, I am even more inspired with deep respect. Uh, okay, that's a wonderful. These are the best kind of questions. <laughs> that's really nice. So, marvelous. I'm glad you are enjoying it. That's kind of the purpose. Uh, that's uh, wonderful. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Uh, dear Sir, I usually hear the term stream entrance, stream winner uh, in Dhamma talks, both in Dhamma talks. Is there a difference in these terms? If so, kindly explain both terms. If stream winner is Sotapanna in Pali, what is the term for stream entrant if there is a difference? Anamodana. Um, not really. I think these are just different translations. Some people say stream enterer, some people say stream winner, and it doesn't really make that much difference. There are certain differences in the Pali language between people who are in that kind of ballpark area. Yeah? And, uh, and the terms used are not usually, usually slightly different terms. Usually there is something known as a a, a Dhamma follower and a faith follower, Dhamma Nusari, Sadha Nusari, and then there is the Sotapanna, the stream enter. And these are kind of the terms you find in the suttas. Um, whether this is what is meant or not with these terms really depends on the person using them and what they mean and all of these kind of things. Uh, this, this difference between these people in the suttas, the suttas often talk about the four pairs and the eight individuals, yeah, the areas. And when we do the recollection of the Sangha, it is the, uh, uh, the uh, Chattaro, Purisa, Yugani, the four pairs, uh, you guys pair, Atta, Purisa, Pugala, the uh, eight individual people. And these are the noble ones, according to the, you know, the people who have an understanding of the Dhamma through personal experience. And they come in slightly different. The reason why there's the different ones is that there is like an initial understanding and then there's like the breakthrough that usually comes later and this is really the difference between the two the initial understanding is you haven't really made the full breakthrough yet you have a kind of initial grasp of the dhamma and then when you make the full breakthrough that is when the fetters come to an end the fetters are the things that bind us to the wheel of life and death yeah a fetter literally means a tie it's like you're you know, chain and ball, that kind of thing. It's a, it's a fetter in the old terminology, but it's like you're being tied to sansaric existence, the, the wheel of birth and death. And these fetters are ten in number, and the first three are then given up when you become a stream enter, and there's a kind of sequence, and then everything is given up eventually when you reach the full awakening here. And the very initial stage of that is when you become a Dhammanusari and Sadhanusari, when you gain the first real profound insight into the the full insight into the Dhamma. And then uh, the story is that, uh, the kind of usual way of looking at it is that once you become a Dhammanusari and Sadhanusari, you have to become a stream enter before you die. Yeah, so you will, at the very latest, on your deathbed, you become a stream enter. And I think there's some kind of commentary that takes this to kind of some great extreme uh, and says that if the universe is about to collapse, uh, 
and you haven't become a stream enter yet, and the universe has to wait until you become a stream enter, <laughs> and then the universe collapses. So, uh, yeah, I think it's just the point is just that if you, you know, if it doesn't happen before, then at the very latest on your deathbed, you become a stream enter or stream winner, depending on which term you prefer. All right, so uh, next one. I feel so depressed, like we need to be almost or actually perfect to be stream winner. <laughs> Does Ajahn Brahm really teach 70% is good enough, or is that a myth? Uh, remember, myths are myths are kind of often there's often a reality behind the myths, you know. So even if I say it's a myth, it may still be true. It doesn't mean that it's kind of false. Um, you have to be perfect to be a stream winner. You, you uh, don't worry about being a stream winner here. Yeah, just do your very best on the path. Uh. Once we start worrying about attaining things, being a stream winner, being an arahant, or being a jhana attain, or being anything at all, you're just creating obstacles for yourself. Uh. Forget about those things. Uh. Just ask yourself whether you are making some progress, uh, whether you're enjoying yourself, uh, whether the spiritual life is working for you. That's all that matters. Uh. Thinking about stream entry, yes, I agree with you, it is very depressing, so don't do that. Uh, <laughs> it's very problematic. It kind of, we, we make something into like a, a sense of self or an ego almost, uh, something which actually is completely devoid of ego, devoid of all of these self things. Uh, so just enjoy the path uh, and don't think too much about these things uh, because they just really lead us astray when we worry too much about these things. Uh, but do your very best, uh, yeah? Don't go for half measures. Uh, try to be kind at all times. It is not depressing at all. It's a wonderful thing if we can be kind at all times. Uh, it's really worthwhile. If you can be kind moment after moment, mentally, in everything you do, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do that. Uh, and feeling the significance of this, because you don't want to step backwards on the path. You always want to move forwards, right? Uh, there's no point in going backwards on the path. There's no point in letting yourself down. Why on earth would you want to let yourself down? So be kind to yourself if you fail, but also understand the importance of actually doing this. This is what life is about. This is the purpose of life. This is what, you know, everything else is kind of insignificant. The only thing that you will remember when you pass away is your character. That's what you take with you into the future. Everything else is irrelevant. Everything that belongs to this world uh, is going to have to be left behind. So w don't worry. Forget about stream entry. 70% uh, is good enough. Well, 70% is good enough uh, in certain circumstances. It depends what you're doing. Yeah? Yeah? What I think the Ajahn Brahm's point is that if you're going to do some kind of worldly thing like sweep the path, uh, don't, don't sweep every single leaf. It doesn't matter if you leave a few leaves. Yeah? That's the kind of thing that he means. Uh, it doesn't mean that you should be 70% kind and 30% naughty, yeah? <laughs> that's not the point. If you're 30% naughty, too much naughtiness, you don't want it. That's not, what he, that's not the point of this. Uh, the point is more to do with how we do things in the world. Uh, so uh, it's kind of a fine balance. On the one hand, you want to be as good as you can, but on the other hand, you don't want to judge yourself for failing. You want to be kind to yourself when you fail. Uh, and sometimes people don't find that balance. And when you don't find that balance, then uh, uh, you are actually not being properly kind, because the kindness should also be directed towards yourself. Uh, it's a very important part of this. Uh. Okay, hope that makes sense. Uh, 
Let's go on to the next one. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, uh, two separate thoughts into to separate thoughts, sorry, into two classes and how to cultivate good thoughts uh, is practical, especially if we still need to go around and about, for example, to work. It's practical, it gives momentum for the mind to energize and less stressed and be able to meditate afterwards, uh, I after work. Uh, thank you. Uh, um, so you, your question is, is it practical? I guess that's the, your question here. Is it practical? Especially if we need to, to go around and about for work, etc. I'm not sure if it's a statement or a question, but anyway, I'll, I'll I assume it is a kind of question. Um, uh, yes, it is practical in everyday life. The difference between everyday life and a meditation retreat is that in everyday life you won't be able to pick up on the refined problems so easily. Yeah? In daily life we have to more focus on the coarser aspects of mind because there are too many things going on. Huh? So you are, we can still be aware when you get upset about something. Yeah? It, that is obviously going to be, you're going to be aware of that. So your job is to become aware of that as soon as possible so you can change course. That is kind of the idea in everyday life. Focus mostly on uh, the problem of ill will, because that is the really problematic part on the Buddhist path. Uh, this is what we really want to overcome. That is really the kind of where we really destroy things badly in terms of our own happiness, in terms of our spiritual progress. So focus mostly on that. And uh, yes, it is always practical to focus on these things. Um, of course, focus also on your speech and your actions. Uh, yeah, integrate everything, uh, your entire life, uh, make your entire life the spiritual path. Uh, and usually, what I have found is that those people who make the entire life the spiritual path actually become better at their work. They become better family members. Everything tends to fall into place. Uh, yeah, that's what that's my experience. Uh, and uh, you, you know, because uh, why? Well, because. These qualities are actually things that make work, make everything better. Everything gets, you know, your fellow employees, your co-workers, your customers, everyone becomes more happy if you are a better person. Uh, certainly family relations are better. Uh, yeah, well, I, you know, I just remember my, with my, myself, I became a much better family member after I became a monk than before I was a monk. Uh, my, my, fam my parents were kind of, wow, what's happened to you, you know? <laughs> You used to be this really dodgy teenager, now you're kind of, uh, you, now you're reasonably nice. <laughs> What's going on? And that's, that's nice when that happens. And I think this happens to all of us uh, when we practice in the right way here. Yeah. So, um, yes. So, anyway, so I hope that uh, is uh, what you were after. If not, please try again. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, kindly help me understand how a thought of sensual, malicious, or cruel nature merely arises in one's mind could harm oneself or others, as long as one does not dwell on this thought and plan to act on it. Sadhu times three. Um, the first thing to be aware of is that uh, thoughts never merely arise. The idea of merely arising is a mere myth. Yeah, it does not. Uh, that's not how it works. The reason a thought arises is because you want it to arise. Somewhere deep down there is an intention that makes the thought arise. 
This is the first thing to be aware of. Um, if you, there is no intention at all, if the mind is completely without any kind of volition or will, no thought will be arising here. And this is why it is possible to make the thought, the mind entirely peaceful, yeah? Because uh, no intention means the mind is entirely peaceful. Nothing is going on there. So it means that there is already an underlying defilement there, uh, yeah? When these thoughts arise, because uh, the will to think a thought that is cruel or harmful or whatever means that there is some problem in the mind, uh, yeah? And that... Uh, you're quite right, though, of course, if you act it out, it's even worse, right? If you act it out, then it makes it much worse. But the very fact that you think these things means that there's already a problem there. So the idea is to have kind thoughts at all times. And when you have a kind thought, the mind becomes much more soft and gentle, and it feels much better within, yeah? So the more we can have these kind of compassionate, kind and caring thoughts within, the more that mind is going to be the kind of mind that is possible to take into deep meditation and samadhi. A mind that has, has this kind of harshness within it is not really suitable for taking into deep meditation. So you want to overcome, at the very least, you want to overcome it so as to make meditation possible. But you also want to overcome it because that seed for doing harmful things is already there. Yeah? Because that seed, if you think something harmful, it will eventually it will express, in, express itself in how you act. Yeah? You can restrain yourself for a while, maybe this whole lifetime, but if the seed is there, it will sprout maybe in your next lifetime, or maybe the life after that. Eventually, it comes back out again. Yeah? The only way you're going to stop these things completely in the tracks is by overcoming the very root of the problem. So first of all, overcome the thinking mind, then get into deep samadhi, some deep states, then gain some deep insights, and eventually the whole seed is uprooted and there is no seed anymore there at all. So it is not very harmful. Yeah, it is, you're not making a lot of bad karma by having bad thoughts. It's not as if you're doing something terrible or anything like that. But we are aiming high in this path. Yeah, we want to kind of take this as far as we possibly can. And if you're aiming high, not merely having a kind of happy rebirth in your next life, but maybe going a bit deeper, gaining some real wisdom, some real understanding, because we're aiming quite high, you need to... Um, you know, deal with even these very refined defilements of the mind. So, I hope that helps. And, uh, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Good evening, Ajahn. Appreciate your sharing. Uh, if a person who meditates often and yet continued to be impatient... Uh, having mood swings, anguish in speech, and unmindful towards misplacing things. Could these characteristics be due to psychotic meditation or medically a sign of Alzheimer's disease? Thank you. Um, <laughs> it really depends. Yeah, the thing is that it, first of all, there's a possibility the person would be even worse if they did not meditate. That's the possibility. Yeah, maybe even more impatient, even more misplacing of things, even more bad speech. Who knows? So this maybe maybe they are improving a little bit. Yeah, even though they still have some uh, clear 
signs of not being spiritually perfect, as you say here, or you imply here. Um, but it is also possible that uh, sometimes people meditate without really gaining great benefits from the meditation practice. Uh, and sometimes you notice people meditate because they become like a, um, almost like a ritual. Yeah, I'm a Buddhist, I have to meditate. And so every day they sit down for 20 minutes or half an hour or whatever, and they do their meditation and without really investigating whether they're making progress, uh, whether they are succeeding in the meditation. They do it as a kind of uh, sila bhatta paramasa. Sila bhatta paramasa is uh, one of the three fetters, uh, yeah, one of the three things that tie us down to existence. Uh, and this is basically the idea that we grasp onto virtues and observances. Uh, yeah, and uh, we can, it's possible to make meditation into one of these observances. Uh, yeah, I just do, I meditate because I'm a Buddhist, I have to meditate, so I meditate every day without really contemplating properly whether you are going anywhere, succeeding, or overcoming the hindrances, or maybe you're just nodding all the time in a meditation or whatever. Yeah, and uh, then of course it may not be very successful. Huh? And sometimes people meditate and they actually have the negative consequences for meditation because they don't actually enjoy it at all. Huh? And if you don't enjoy it at all, if you actually uh, um, quite literally dislike it, but you think you should be doing it regardless, uh, then you're going to feel grumpy after you come out of meditation. Uh, that is really counterproductive. Uh, so please don't do that. It's better not to meditate in that case, uh, because the purpose is to create a mind that is more stable, that is more gentle, that is more kind, that is more mindful, that has all of these good qualities. Uh, if that is not created in your mind, then actually it is pointless. Uh, so it depends on all of these things, what is going on here. If, I, if, if um, you have to choose between either living well, being kind, being moral, being ethical person, or meditating, if those are the two choices you have, you should always choose to live ethically. That is the more important thing, because that is the foundation for everything else. And your meditation isn't really going to work properly unless you have the ethics. So if there is a choice, the most important thing is actually to live well. Yeah, that is the foundation for everything else. And if you live well, then eventually, if you do meditate, the meditation will work. But if you just meditate, and you don't really think about the ethics, then you can meditate for 10 years, and then at the end of 10 years, nothing has really happened, and you're kind of back to square one. It was a, I was someone recently who told me there was a uh, some person who had been meditating for a long, long time, for 10 years, and they hadn't been watching television at all because television felt like a distraction while they were meditating. And after 10 years, they kind of st uh, started, turned on television again. And as soon as they turned on television, they were addicted to TV again, uh, like straight away. Uh. And uh, the reason why that happens, uh, the reason why people get addicted to things, uh, usually is because we have a kind of suffering in our life. Yeah. There's some suffering deep down, we want to blot it out. And the way to blot suffering out is to get addicted to things. That's why people drink, they use drugs, they get addicted to television, that's a small one. Yeah, we get addicted to anything really, to eating too much or whatever. Addictions are a result of suffering in life. So the way to help us overcome suffering is to live well, yeah? to live with kindness and care towards ourselves and towards others. So if this person who had been meditating for 10 years had looked more after their virtue and kindness, 
cared more for themselves, and after 10 years, they wouldn't have been addicted to television. So you wonder, all that meditation for 10 years, how effective was it? It probably wasn't a waste of time, that would be exaggerating, but it wasn't all that effective, because they hadn't integrated into a, a larger idea of the Buddhist path. The most fundamental thing is to be kind. If there's anything you should do in your life, is to be kind. If you choose between meditation and kindness, always choose kindness first, because that is the foundation of everything else. So, um, so this is how, this is what I would maybe suggest to a person who has these kind of problems, yeah? And then maybe they can, um, hopefully they can improve, yeah? And if they have Alzheimer's disease, well then they have Alzheimer's, then they, you know that's going to be a problem regardless. But hopefully it is uh, something they can deal with and sort out. All right. Dear Ajahn, having listened to your wonderful explanations on the importance of purification of the mind, speech and actions, uh, I feel many people try meditation too early and then either quit meditation or worse, try to look for other methods to attain awakening. What are your valued thoughts? Um, Yes, I tend to agree with you. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of the Buddhist path. I think there is a, a lot of people who don't value the earlier aspects of the teaching enough. I, you know, the mindfulness movement is one of these big international movements happening where everyone is into mindfulness. And um, they have deliberately separated out mindfulness and made it into a secular activity without any kind of reference to other Buddhist values. And that was a deliberate choice at the beginning of the mindfulness movement because they didn't want it to be religious. And, you know, okay, I can, you can understand that. It's kind of fair enough. They don't want it to be religious. Anyway, the word religious is just another word. It really depends what you mean by it. Yeah, I don't think Buddhism necessarily is all that religious. It really depends what you mean by these terms. But uh, the point is that once you separate it out like that, you sever it from the other factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, you're left with a very stunted practice. And you're left with this idea that you can just be mindful and somehow that will give results without, I've just talked about this at length for the previous question, without integrating it into these other factors. And of course, virtue is absolutely fundamental. You have to live a life of kindness, otherwise it's not going to work out. And I think they are starting to realize that. So they're starting to kind of reintegrate these kind of broader aspects of the path. I think they start to realize that actually they made a mistake by just taking out one factor and isolating it from the rest of the path. And they're kind of starting, gradually is coming back again to a more complete path. But even that is not really enough. Yeah? One of the things I mentioned during the initial talk when we talked about meditation practice is also the significance of right view. You also have to have right view if you're really going to be able to succeed in this practice. Because right view is what gives you the right values. The right values is what gives you the right priorities. When you have the right values and the right priorities, well then you will be able to choose those things that are high priority and high value. In other words, you will be able to Meditate when you meditate, because that is what you value. 
So right view guides you towards what is important in life. It enables things like meditation to happen because you value the right thing. All of these things are integrated. They're part of the same path. They cannot really separate them out. So uh, you are ve- I think you are very right about this. Yeah, And uh, you... Uh, also, the idea of meditating too early in the sense that we, uh, you, know, you sit down and you don't really give yourself time for the mind to calm down properly. You grasp onto the breath. You have this very common thing in meditation circles. You sit down, you get hold of the breath straight away. It becomes like a compulsion of the mind where you grasp onto the breath. No, you have to learn to just relax first of all. You have to learn to just sit back. Learn to allow things to calm down to let go of things, let go of the world, uh, to establish a degree of mindfulness. Uh, All of these things have to happen first. Then you go to the breath, when the mind is in balance. So there's many things here. There is the idea of how you treat an individual session of meditation, and then there is the broader sense of how you meditate and integrate it into your entire lifestyle. Uh, All of these things matter. Uh, And uh, I was one of the Things. The reason I use the idea of the sunset before is because w- when you watch a sunset, you're not really involved. Yeah? You don't grasp onto the sunset. Uh, you just sit back and enjoy it, right? Uh, you don't hold on to it. You just, enjoy, you just have a good time with it. And if your mind wanders off, you no problem with the sunset. Uh, and that is a little bit like how we should treat the breath, yeah? In the same way as a sunset, without grasping onto the thing. Yeah? That's why I use that image, uh, without holding onto it. Uh, at the same time, a sunset is something you enjoy. Yeah, it is beautiful, all the colors, whatever. So you should enjoy the meditation of the breath in a sim- not in exactly the same way, but the same kind of attitude that it's something attractive to you. Huh? That is the idea here. Huh? So um, this is what we are trying to do in meditation. Yeah, and it's kind of very it can be very frustrating. So one of the very important things is to learn to be patient. Yeah. Just sitting there without doing anything, it feels sometimes like you're wasting your time. And if you feel like you're wasting your time, maybe you're doing the right thing. <laughs> Isn't that kind of cool? Yeah, I'm wasting my time. Okay, you're on the right track. You're wasting your time. Good. Well done. <laughs> and so everything is a bit different from how we think it should be sometimes. But if you feel like you're wasting your time, but you are actually gradually calming down, you're gradually not grasping at what's going on, then maybe you are actually on the right track. Yeah. So, um, patience is very, very important on this path. Uh, and yes, you're right. And then if they kind of you it, go to meditation too early, and then the meditation doesn't really work, and you try it year in and year out, you don't get anywhere, eventually you're going to give up. Yeah? And you're going to kind of look for solutions elsewhere. And uh, that, I think, is a terrible shame, because to me, the uh, Buddhist path, when practiced properly, has enormous potential. Uh, It's a a marvelous path. I don't think you will find anything similar anywhere else. You might find some nice kind of modern psychology methods that will kind of make you a little bit better and will work for a while. But in terms of overall potential, in terms of overall movement towards profound understanding and great mindfulness and great happiness, in overall perspective, this path, there's nothing like this path anywhere else. So it's a terrible shame to throw it out for something more shallow, something less profound uh, than the Buddhist teachings. Uh. Okay.
Dear Ajahn, could you teach us about the six senses and when it gets into impact? Thanks, Ajahn, with metta. So, the six senses, yeah, the, um, I guess what you are talking about here is when you have the sense contact, yeah, and, the, and you kind of you have an experience through the six senses and how to deal with that. And, uh, you know, I guess this is a question about the kind of usual dependent origination sequence when there is the eye and there is the object, the, uh, the, the scene, yeah, the object, and depending on the object and the eye, eye consciousness arises. And with the meeting of the three, yeah, the eye consciousness, the object, and the eye, the meeting of the three is called contact. And contact is like the beginning of an experience, yeah, the start of an experience through the eye consciousness, this is one of the standard ways that these things are described in the suttas. Yeah, the uh, kind of the, the the working of the sensory apparatus, if you like. Yeah. And then, when you have an experience through one of the senses, then there will always be a feeling that goes with that. Yeah, you see something, either it feels good or it feels bad or whatever it is. And because there is a feeling that goes with, then you will tend to either desire it or reject it. Either you desire it or you have an aversion towards it. And this is where craving this arises, right? This is where craving becomes a problem. And this is exactly what we're talking about now. We're talking about sense restraint on the path. That sense restraint is precisely how to deal with that impact on the six senses. The world kind of coming into us, yeah? Things coming from the outside and affecting us in a certain way. Yeah? So we are dealing with that. This is exactly what we're dealing with now how to deal with craving, how to deal with aversion and ill will, these kind of things. This is exactly what this is going to be about. I'm going to talk about this quite a lot later on. So just stay tuned, don't leave the retreat, and we will come to all of these things. So, yes, I won't say anything more about that for now. So... Dear Ajahn, you have gone to great lengths to instill in us that we are on a path of gradual training, gradual purification. I meet so many people in my meditation class that think they have to suffer to earn the fruits of the practice. What do you think this obsession with penance and atonement comes from? I see people who are clearly suffering both mentally and physically from the wrong view and misplaced effort. What do you say? <laughs> Okay, uh, yes, it's interesting, isn't it, that we have this idea that um, suffering is somehow a good thing on the Buddhist path. And uh, I think it probably comes from many things in life. I think we have been taught that uh, no pain, no gain. Yeah, this is kind of how we grow up. Study really hard. Okay, if you study really hard, yes, it's going to be painful to do that. study, But you will have get results later on. No pain, no gain. And I think this is a very common view around the world. Yeah, when we work really hard, wherever it is, you have to work hard to gain your wages. And the working hard always involves a certain degree of pain. Yeah, physical exercise always has a certain... So I think it's very deeply embedded in human psychology, the idea that you have to experience a certain degree of suffering to actually gain results from that. And then we transfer that from the ordinary life onto the spiritual path. Why do we do that? And the reason we do that is because it is also a very common thing in spiritual circles, the idea that 
you have to experience pain to be able to have success in spirituality. This is true in almost all religions. Yeah? If you think about the idea of uh, religions very often, the idea of torturing the flesh yeah, or whipping yourself as you sometimes find in various religions. Uh, you find in the ancient Brahmanical religion uh, yeah, how you kind of you people go through all kinds of ascetic practices. Very common you find this in the suttas uh, all the time. Yeah, the Jains did this, maybe some of the Brahmanical teachings did this. They do this in Christianity, they do it in Islam. It seems to be across the board. Uh, and I think a very a reason for that, I think, is this idea that the body is somehow in the way for spiritual freedom. Yeah? Because the body is kind of evil, because it's in the body we sort of assume that the desires we have yeah, that block spiritual freedom are somehow related to the physical body. But of course, ultimately, all desires are go back to the mind. But somehow we relate it to the body because I guess that's where it expresses itself often. Yeah, eating and relationships and all of this kind of stuff. So by torturing the body, the idea is you neutralize. I think this is the idea. You neutralize the desires. Yeah, because torturing is the opposite of pleasure in the body. So by torturing it counteracts the pleasure, and then you neutralize, and bang, you get spiritual liberation as a consequence. And this, I think, is one of the profound insights of the Buddha. It doesn't work like that. And the reason why it doesn't work like that is because if you torture the body, it is just another way of making the body important. If you experience pleasure through the body, the body is important. Yeah? If you torture the body, the body is also important because you want to get rid of the pain. So still, the body is important. So the way to overcome the body is not to torture it, but is to find the middle way where the body no longer matters. And that is where there is neither indulgence nor is there pain. In both of those two ends, endpoints, both of those two extremes, the body matters. When both of those are taken away, the body is neutralized. The body becomes irrelevant. There's no desire, no pain, no nothing. And that is where the development of the mind happens. And this is one of the reasons why the Buddha starts out the very first sutta, the Dhamma Chakka Pavatana Sutta, the setting in motion of the will of the Dhamma, the very first thing it teaches is the middle way. Torturing doesn't work. Indulgence doesn't work. Instead, what works is that you have to be at ease. You have to be relaxed. You have to give rise to the positive spiritual Happiness is yeah, the joy of kindness, of generosity, of faith in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, of good companionship and all of these kind of things. The spiritual happiness, that is what works. And that is the middle way between all of this. The middle way is actually happiness. The middle way is not pain or suffering. And this is one of the things, if you read the suttas carefully, and this is one of the, what I would, you would call the low-hanging fruits of reading the suttas, uh, is that you start to see how happiness is everywhere in the suttas. And it's kind of astonishing that even in the Buddhist world, uh, a large number of Buddhists or people who meditate think, don't realize that. Yeah? They think that you sit down and you experience pain in the body. Good on you, pain in the body. Yeah? Watch it, uh, and then you'll gain some real results. no. That is not, not at all what the suttas say. What the suttas say, and we were talking about this, uh, you know, is this, is this uh, 
dependent liberation. And dependent liberation starts off with virtue. From virtue you have non-remorse. From non-remorse you have gladness. From gladness you have joy. From joy you have tranquility. From tranquility you have happiness. From happiness you have stillness or samadhi. From samadhi you have seeing things according to reality. And if you look at that, it's all about happiness all the way through. Everything is about happiness. And it is not an isolated incident in the suttas. It's absolutely everywhere. The seven factors of awakening are basically the same sequence. Mindfulness of breathing have basically the same factors. Dependent liberation is the same sequence. The six anusattis, recollections, is the same sequence. It's absolutely everywhere. And there is nowhere at all that says you should sit down and watch the painful feelings in the body. Absolutely zilch, zip, nada. Yeah, in the suttas. <laughs> and I think where it comes from, it comes from the Satipatthana Sutta, where it says that you are supposed to know painful feelings, right? And it says you're supposed to know painful feelings. And then, of course, the assumption is that that means you observe painful feelings in the body. But actually, I think that is completely the wrong assumption. And if you look at how meditation is practiced everywhere else in the suttas, actually, no, it is about happiness. And understanding pain in the body is more like by implication, uh, by overcoming it, rather than actually directly observing it. Uh, In my experience, you don't learn all that much by watching pain in the body. What you learn is that meditation is a pain in the backside. You don't want to do it anymore. That's what you learn from all of that. Uh, And you give up, yeah, which is so common in uh, uh, in Buddhist circles, in meditation circles. Uh, it doesn't, this does not mean that you should expect to always have just happiness and joy. Uh, yeah, that is also going too far. Uh, it is not going to be like that. Uh, this doesn't mean that you are never going to have the slightest pain in your body. You are, because the body is like that. It will always give you some trouble and problems. Uh, but what it means is that you should certainly not seek it out. Uh, it means that if you have a lot of trouble with pain, you should change your posture. What it means that you should not kind of, uh, you know, you should, you should deal with the pain in a skillful way. That's what it means. If the mind becomes obsessed with the pain in the body, that is the time to change your posture and do things in a different way. So make the spiritual life into something that enhances your lived experience, that makes your life better. This is really the critical thing here. Life has enough problems as it has already here. We don't want to make more problems through the spiritual practice. The spiritual practice should be a help. It should be something supportive, something positive that adds value to our life, not subtracts value. All right. So, um, okay, so I think that hopefully should answer that question. So let us go on to the last question for uh, tonight. Dear Ajahn, would you be happy to share with us which sutta or verse has made a big impact in your practice? How were you able to apply the teaching? I find this not so easy to do uh, with respect, much respect and metta. Um, which sutta or verse has made a big impact in your practice? Well, it, it kind of varies from time to time, yeah? And uh, there's many things. I, I think I always found the gradual training to be very, very powerful because it kind of gave me a very 
clear structure about what to do and where to put in my effort. I could see the whole training. I could look, okay, where am I? Okay, I'm towards the very bottom here. I've got to get myself sorted out at the beginning, first of all. And you kind of build it up from there. Yeah? So I find the gradual training. I'm, there's many things in the suttas that have really inspired me here. I found the death contemplations very powerful in the suttas. Yeah? Like the, uh, the suttas that uh, talk about... Because death kind of clarifies things for you. Yeah? It kind of prioritizes things very clearly. There's a beautiful sutta in the um, Kosala Sangyutta that I used to, I haven't shared it now for quite a while on retreats, but it is the simile of the mountains. There's kind of a number of beautiful mountain similes, by the way, in the suttas. But this particularly is a simile of the mountains, yeah? And uh, the Buddha says to King Pasenadi, he's a king, right? And he's kind of involved in all these kind of problems in life. And the Buddha says to him, you know, what great king here. What would you do if a man came from the south and this man told you that there is a mountain coming from the south, walking this way, crushing all living beings? Yeah, and the king said, well, what could I do except for, you know, live well and do what is good? What would you do, King, if another mountain came from the west, coming this way, crushing all living beings as it's moving this way? Another mountain from the east, another mountain from the north? What would you do? And of course the answer is always, I would do what's good. I would live well. And then the Buddha says to him, yeah, this mountain that is crushing everything, he says, old age and death is coming from all directions all the time, crushing all living beings. It's always there, always happening, always waiting to crush you. You don't know how far away that mountain is. That mountain could be just next to you right now, ready to crush you. Squash. You're finished. That's it. You've had it. And I thought that was so powerful when I read that. Yeah, these mountains crushing you. This is actually old age and death. And it kind of puts things in perspective in a very beautiful way. So I think that made impact on me. That was in the very early days when I kind of started out. But it's still a beautiful simile. And there are a number of things like this in the suttas that are really kind of powerful. One of the nice similes in the suttas. And one of the strange things that I often fa- find is that I, I hear a teaching from Ajahn Brahm, yeah, and then I read the suttas and I find a similar kind of teaching. And I wonder, did Ajahn Brahm come up with this by himself, or did he read the suttas first and then come up with this, or, or how does this work? And there's one of these similes, it's a simile, another simile of the mountain. I really like mountains. I come from Norway, Norway's like a mountainous country. We always go into the mountains, yeah, we go skiing and this kind of stuff. Uh, this is a long time ago now, I probably can't ski anymore, but anyway. So um, this other simile of the mountain is there's two friends, yeah, walking through the jungle. Uh, and they come to this mountain, and uh, one friend, mountains may be an exaggeration, a hill, call it a hill, uh, um, Pabata is the Pali word. It kind of means a hill or a mountain. So one friend says to the other one, oh, let's, let's, let's go to the top. And the other one said, nah, you know, couldn't be bothered. They yeah, too much, are too much hard work. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll stay down here. You go to the top. And so this other friend, he goes to the top of the mountain. Yeah. And when he goes to the top of the mountain, he says, wow, you wouldn't believe it. Yeah. Top of the mountain, I can see the fields. I can see the lakes. I can see the villages. I can see all of this landscape out there. You know, it's just so... Magnificent, it's really beautiful up here, you know. Come up, yeah. And then the other one said, No, nah, I don't believe you. There's no lakes, there is nothing out there. I don't believe a word of what you say here. 
And then this guy, this fellow on the top of the mountain gets a bit frustrated. What do you mean? How can you stand on the bottom and deny these things? Yeah, what are you? <laughs> so he goes down to the bottom of the mountain. He grabs his mate yeah, by the arm and drags him up to the top. And he says, okay, what do you see? <laughs> and this other friend is a bit sheepish. Yeah, okay, yeah, <clears throat> you're right. I see kind of beautiful villages, beautiful fields and all of these kind of things. And then he says, well, why did you just say, standing at the bottom of the mountain, that these things don't exist? And then he says, oh, I was blocked by this very mountain, so I couldn't see it. And then the Buddha says, well, it's exactly the same for each one of us. We are blocked by the hindrances. We are blocked by the sensory realm from being able to see the profundity and the beauty of samadhi, yeah, of deep meditation. We can't see it, and so we deny its very existence. A lot of people in the world, if you tell them there's such a thing as samadhi, where you kind of bliss out completely, everything's completely peaceful, and the world comes to an end, so many people probably think we are a bit nuts when we say these things, right? But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist, because the world is blocked by these hindrances. And we need to rise above the world. And when we rise above the world, we see these things. And then, of course, you have Ajahn Brahm, who talks about a very similar kind of experience in one of his books. Yeah? You probably know about that, ex- that famous story in, in the opening the door of your heart. And sometimes Ajahn Brahm's stories are actually very profound, and people don't really fully appreciate the profundity of these stories. And this is a story when Ajahn Brahm was in Central America as a student. This would be how long ago? 50 years ago or whatever. And he was traveling through Guatemala, where they have these ancient Mayan pyramids in Central America. Yeah, and going through the jungle, the jungle is really dense. Yeah, traveling on tiny little roads, on little rivers by boat, and all these kind of things. And eventually, you come to these ancient pyramids that were built by the Mayan civilization in the jungle. And in those days, when Ajahn Brahm was there, this was back in the 1970s, right? There was no. These weren't tourist traps yet at that time. So there was no guards on this pyramid. You can just walk onto these pyramids exactly as you wanted. These days they charge you a fortune probably to get in there. But in those days everything was very free. And so Ajahn Brahm said, you walk to the top of the mountain. And when you walk to the, not the mountain, the, uh, the pyramid. And when you get to the top of the pyramid, you can see to the horizon. Yeah, you've been in this dense jungle day after day after day, and finally you get to the top of the mountain. It is like a spiritual experience, yeah? because suddenly you can see something completely different from what you're used to. And he says it's like samadhi experience. You emerge from the jungle of the five senses. You elevate yourself above that, and for the first time in your life, are you able to see the world in an entirely different way. You can see to the horizon. You can understand what that jungle actually was about. You can understand what the five senses are about. You could never really understand it before, because you were fully immersed in those five senses. It's almost exactly the same story as the suttas, right? And I, and I was wondering always, <laughs> is it because it is natural that these similes come up when you are a good meditator? So everyone has the same kind of similar kind of idea? Maybe, yeah. but it's still kind of very interesting. Yeah. So when you, I, I really recommend people to, you know, Ajahn Brahm likes to have fun uh, and he likes to mess around all these kind of things, uh, but there's often much more profundity going on than people give credit for uh, with his, uh, the way he teaches. Uh. 
And uh, sometimes, you, you know, uh, I would really recommend people to listen carefully, listen to those stories. Uh, what are they actually trying to say? Uh, they're often very deep, uh, often very useful, uh, powerful spiritual insights that are conveyed through these stories. Uh, we're going to come to another sutta very soon, which I have found, two suttas that I have found very, very important in my life, because, but because we're going to talk about them soon, I don't know if there's any point in kind of, you know, uh, preempting that now, because uh, otherwise we're going to, maybe I can talk very briefly about them. And one of them is this idea how to overcome anger and ill will. Yeah? This is very, very important on the Buddhist path, and we need some good tools to do that. And one of the things that I learned by reading these suttas is that uh, the reason why we get have ill will to other people is because we look at them in the wrong way. We look at them as agents, as people who are doing bad things towards us. But that is the wrong way to think about other people. What they are, they are conditioned phenomena who do things because of their own inner and outer conditioning. Got nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with them. Yeah? And once you start to see people in this way as conditioned phenomena, like a the wind in the trees, yeah, or like a traffic light or whatever, uh, then that changes your entire attitude towards other people. Uh, and you start to have compassion because you realize that they are the first victim of their own bad conduct. Uh, and we are only secondary victims. Uh, it's kind of very fascinating when that happens because you see someone else treating you badly and all you, ha- all you have is compassion for them. That's kind of powerful when that happens. Uh, It's very, very powerful, and it's very interesting, because it shows you a small change in outlook can change your entire reaction to how you deal with people around you. Very, very fascinating. That's one of my... The other kind of things that I find very very interesting are the similes to do with the sensory... uh, the five senses, and we're going to come to the Potalia Sutta, uh, soon, I don't tomorrow, tomorrow or the day after, or whatever. And we're going to talk about these similes, and they're very interesting similes about the sensory world, uh, the downside of the sensory world. Uh, but um, I'm not going to say anything about that now because I'm going to leave that for uh, that day, so we can have a bit more, can be a bit fresher when we come to that on uh, soon. Okay. Everyone, that is all for tonight. So I wish you a marvelous night. Have a really good night's rest. And we'll see you back again tomorrow morning here. Okay, so let's pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha together here.